and welcome to the latest edition of the Tobacco Control Journal podcast. Today I'm talking with Andrew Hyland, who is the first author on a paper about the associations of lifetime active and passive smoking with spontaneous abortion, stillbirth, and tubal ectopic pregnancy. Now, obviously, smoking in pregnancy is something a lot of people who work in tobacco control are really concerned about. So this is a really topical issue, and I'm really excited to be talking with Andrew today. Hi. Oh, hi. Hi, Becky. <laughs> Maybe we could just get started by, you could tell us about, you know, why you did this research and what is known about smoking and pregnancy and, and these um, issues. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's pretty clear that uh, women who smoke during pregnancy have poorer outcomes, uh, uh, so they're more likely to have miscarriages and other adverse uh, reproductive outcomes. What's uh, much less known is what the association with secondhand smoke exposure is mm. with those outcomes. There's just a handful of studies uh, that uh, address the topic with results that uh, uh, vary, and the opportunity here with, with this paper is to look at a very large uh, cohort of women as part of the Women's Health Initiative in the U.S. and uh, piece together uh, information that they report about their not only active smoking but secondhand smoke exposure and, uh, and some of these reproductive outcomes. Excellent. Now, Obviously, looking at secondhand smoke, there's been some other studies that have tried to sort of look at lifetime exposure to secondhand smoke, and they've struggled with getting, you know, consistency and accuracy. How did you mitigate or avoid these sorts of issues in your study? Yeah, and that's, I think, the one thing from those studies that comes out is measuring secondhand smoke is both tricky, yet it's vitally important in order to really understand what the associations are. So, for example, the studies that link uh, breast cancer with secondhand smoke, uh, it, the issue really comes down to defining a group of women that have never smoked cigarettes and have never been exposed to secondhand smoke. Uh, and, and sort of making that distinction is really key in order to uh, lift the clouds and allow the investigators to see that those associations. This study here with the Women's Health Initiative, they actually do a very uh, detailed job of assessing both smoking as well as secondhand smoke exposure, both uh, as a child and then uh, years of exposure uh, in adulthood, both uh, at home, work, and uh, other settings. And so that allowed us to create essentially an index of exposure. Uh, so obviously we've got active smokers, and then they have varying degrees of secondhand smoke exposure. And then uh, those that are never smokers, we are able to categorize them in a, a wide range of secondhand smoke exposure, ranging from none, which is our control group, to those that have lots of exposure, more than 20, 20 years in these various settings. Oh, okay. Excellent. And so tell us a little bit more about the women in your study then. How did they enroll? Who are they? Where does this cohort come from? Yes, the, the Women's Health Initiative is a, a massive uh, undertaking uh, done. It's, uh, it's a, a clinical trial uh, based uh, in the United States. It, it began in the 1990s, early 1990s. There are over 160,000 women who were recruited onto this study uh, from academic-based centers all, all around the, the United States. About half of those women uh, were 
enrolled in uh, various uh, clinical trials to look at different interventions to try to improve risk. These women, when recruited, uh, were a, between the ages of 50 and 74 years of age, and half, again, were in the clinical trial arm, and then half, about 80,000, were in an observational uh, component where no intervention was given, but they were tracked over time, administered questionnaires over time, at various points provided biospecimens and other clinical measurements, which, which are not part of uh, what we report on, but it gives you a flavor of what the investment made in this group, and obviously 80,000 women tracked over time, uh, in terms of study design, uh, while we're just using it for secondary data analysis, is uh, is a pretty pretty significant piece of data to work with, uh, with a, a pretty comprehensive assessment of secondhand smoke exposure as well as, uh, as some of these uh, clinical outcomes that the women are self-reporting on. Yeah, I'd say you'd probably be the the envy of a lot of other researchers having access to such a tremendously large and rich source of data. It's, it's very impressive. Yeah, and that's true. And Becky, I might add, I mean, th- these data, they're publicly available. So for those that are interested, they can Google Women's Health Initiative and as an investigator. And it's not free per se, but you can put your, your uh, uh, ideas in place. And there have been hundreds of papers that have come out of this out of this study, uh, and uh, it just happens that one of my close colleagues is a one of the principal investigators on on the the Women's Health Initiative. But it's a fantastic resource, uh, not only for its uh, main objectives uh, that the study was designed for, but also as a general resource to the scientific community. Oh, fantastic! That's that's excellent for our listeners to know about. What did you find? How big is this increased risk? So uh, what we found, uh, the, the two components, women who, uh, who smoke uh, mm-hmm. were more likely to have adverse repro- reproductive outcomes. And, and these are uh, spontaneous abortion or miscarriage, which are losses early in pregnancy, stillbirths, which are losses later in the latter half of pregnancy, as well as uh, tubal ectopic pregnancies, which is when uh, things don't set up in the right spot, and they can cause uh, adverse problems. Pretty clear associations. Women who smoked had about a 50% increased risk uh, for each of these outcomes, and that, that was expected. That the literature uh, shows that. When we look at secondhand smoke exposure, we, I mentioned we defined a, uh, a range of secondhand smoke exposure from none, to uh, large levels, both as a child and as an adult. And those results showed uh, for each of those three adverse reproductive outcomes, uh, statistically significant elevated dose response risks for miscarriages, uh, stillbirths, and tubal pregnancies. Uh, in the range uh, for miscarriage, we're looking at an increased risk of maybe 15 to 20 percent. And for the other two outcomes, and for the highest exposure category in the 50, 60, 70 percent range. Wow, that's that's pretty. That, those numbers sound big and scary to me. Are they? How do you compare those to to other things that women are routinely advised to, you know, avoid when they're pregnant, like soft cheeses and things like this? Is that is this a, a risk that we should be paying a lot more attention to? That's a hard question for me to to address. Uh, some things like soft cheese, I think the science behind that is more uh, hearsay than mm-hmm. uh, than rigor. Uh, but the thing that's most striking to me and why 
th- this is uh, really strikes home is uh, you know worldwide there's over, there's about 210 million pregnancies in the world each year. You know, if you're looking at uh, even a 10% elevated risk about an exposure that is pretty ubiquitous globally, you're talking about the potential for, you know, millions of unborn children to have, you know, these adverse outcomes. It really frames the debate differently than what a lot of secondhand smoke debates are, which are, you know, lung cancer, heart disease. Those are things that old people get. Uh, yeah. But when you start talking about millions of pregnancies being disrupted in some way because of this ubiquitous secondhand smoke exposure, uh, it really brings it, it uh, to a whole different level. Absolutely. And I, I wonder, too, if, I just to, to clarify, I think I said exposure during pregnancy. This study actually looked at, regardless of whether the women were pregnant or not at the time, it's the cumulative exposure. Is, is that right? Uh, yes, this study is uh, is looking at, again, the women enrolled were between the ages of 50 and 75, so they're mm-hmm. retrospectively recalling about their pregnancy history and their secondhand smoke exposure. We, to try to minimize, uh, because of the timing of the exposure could be important. Now, we, we don't have the fantastic ability to tease that out because we're retrospectively assessing this. However, uh, we were able to look at the information in the questionnaire and the dates of uh, the pregnancies reported to try to clean up those exposure measures so that we're looking at exposures that happened before, during uh, pregnancy. Okay, great. Now, you've touched on this already, but um, I think just to conclude to maybe reinforce about, so what, what are the, the policy implications of your findings? What, are, what, what should public health, what should we be pushing for because of this? Yeah, I think maybe two fronts here. One, it's uh, yet another reason why uh, smoke-free spaces should be provided to, uh, to workers and the public. The target population here, though, it, it sort of shifts a little bit because now you're talking about young women, Mm-hmm. And it adds to that evidence. Um, and then the second point is, in particular, the arguments become stronger when you start talking about providing uh, smoke-free bar and restaurant spaces, uh, because you, you know who works in in bars and restaurants, and mm-hmm. it's generally uh, sort of a predisposition or a, a preponderance of uh, uh, young women where this may be an issue. And then the other area uh, is in uh, shared multi-unit housing dwellings, so big apartment buildings where, where people may be living. So you may not allow smoking in your apartment or your condo, or, uh, but if the person next door to you allows smoking or, or below you or some other place in the building, it could be uh, creating exposure for you and your family. So uh, there's uh, a lot of people that uh, live in this in uh, shared multi-unit housing, and these data, I think, would be one more piece for uh, proponents of providing smoke-free spaces in shared living quarters uh, to have, at a minimum, sort of voluntary policy adoption by those that that manage those properties. And that, that sort of latter policy you're talking about certainly is hot in Australia at the moment where I'm based. More and more apartment buildings, shared spaces, things like that, are going smoke-free. The 
apartment I just lived in, for example, had an absolutely zero tolerance policy. You can even smoke on your balconies. It was really interesting. Just to say thank you so much for your time. I think this is a really important piece of work, and I know that、um, a lot of readers will be really interested in hearing about your views on this. So thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you, Becky. Appreciate it. No worries.